0: Fire Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to the National Fire Radio podcast, a podcast that is designed to talk about the job. I'm the luckiest guy alive. I get to interview the coolest people out there in the American fire service and talk about the job. Everything from guys riding backwards, officers, chiefs up through companies, people, manufacturers, products, organizations, you name it. We're trying to capture the stories promote the job and make the job better. So if you're returning and you're a regular listener, thank you. If you're new to the podcast, check it out and let us know what you think. Podcast at NationalFireRadio.com is where you can find us. Send us an email. Let us know what you think about the show, people that you think might be a good guest or anything else that you want to talk about. Send it over to Podcast at NationalFireRadio.com. We'd love to hear from you. And what we get to do is bring forth the word about the job. But in order to do that, we need the help of some sponsors. So do me a favor, hang tight, and listen to the words from a few of our sponsors. This episode's brought to you by Box Alarm Grills. When your apparatus arrives on scene, are you making the best showing? Looking to set your rig apart from everyone else? Want your engine truck or rescue to be easily identifiable? There is a solution. With large aluminum grill numbers and full width rear mud flaps from Box Alarm Grills. Formed by Danny and a team of fellow firefighters, Box Alarm Grills gets it. They know what it means to show pride in your ride, delivering the quality construction and design that fire departments demand. That's why their grill numbers and mud flaps grab attention, enhance visibility, and make your fleet recognizable on scene while responding or just driving around town. Built in the USA by a family owned business. Box Alarm Grills is quickly becoming the choice of fire companies, apparatus planners, and fire truck manufacturers with out-of-the-box or custom solutions. Check out functional, durable grill numbers and mud flaps from Box Alarm Grills today at BoxAlarmGrills.com and on Facebook and Instagram. And like Danny and his crew like to say, add pride to your ride. Taylor's Tins. Taylor and his team have been manufacturing aluminum helmet fronts since 2017 with over 200,000 shields in the market. Taylor's Tins is a leader in the American Fire Service helmet front space. Not only do they manufacture helmet fronts, but they do so much more. Locker tags, key chains, CO monitor charts, medical kit charts, pump charts, banquet awards, you name it, they do it. Go over to taylorstins.com and check out what they can offer you today. They've become a longtime sponsor and good friend of the national fire radio podcast. And because of that, they offer a promo code at checkout. So when you go to taylorstins.com, tins.com enter NFR sent me, that is NFR sent me and you'll get 15% off your checked out order. It works on all stock items from Taylorstins.com, including quick tins, license plates, locker tags, and much, much more. Exclusions do apply. This is a company that prides themselves on quality and customer service. From the inception, from your design to out the door, it's within 48 hours. Nobody else is doing that. They can't do that. 48 hours to get your shield out the door to you, put it on your helmet, and get to the next job. Anyway, check out taylorstins.com. Again, that's taylorstins.com. Check out their latest offerings and use promo code NFRSENTME. That's NFRSENTME for 15% off on your checkout. And in the words of Taylor and his crew, stop burning up leather. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the National Fire Radio podcast. Today is an absolute special treat. This whole week, I got some real heavy hitters. Today is certainly uh, one that I'm going to cherish, and I'm look- I've am looking. i been looking forward to this conversation. And I'm a little bit nervous, too. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Even though this podcast is designed to just basically be a conversation between brothers who love the job, sharing a cup of coffee, if you will, uh, today's, today's going to be a lot of fun. I have with me today retired Deputy Assistant Chief John Norman of the FDNY. Chief, thank you for joining me today.
1: Jeremy, good for having you. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Oh man, this is an absolute treat. Now I'm going to share a lot of personal stories because you were very influential uh, in one of those pillars of the fire service that helped me find my way early on in wanting to do better and be better. And I want to go down that rabbit hole with you. But before we get there for anybody that might not know you or if they live under a rock, I'm going to share with them a little bit of your pedigree so people have an understanding of who you are and where you've come from. Uh so bear with me because it's only about four pages of notes chief but um 50 years in the fire service 27 with the FDNY um you rode in some really busy companies so uh Engine 290 Ladder 103 Rescue 3 you were part of developing uh Hazmat Company 1 back in 1984 a lieutenant in Rescue 2 uh captain in Rescue 1 battalion chief in 1999 After the tragic days of 9-11, you became the chief of SOC, which is the Special Operations Command, deputy chief in 2003, deputy assistant chief in 2004, where you were still in charge of the Special Operations Command, as well as now serving as the citywide tour commander. You're a best-selling author. Um, One of the books that I keep and I have marked up and I'm going to read a couple things out of shortly, The Fire Officer's Handbook of Tactics. That is a book that I got back in, say, 1999 or so that helped me formulate some real uh, opinions about furthering my education and pushing myself in the fire service. Uh, You've written books such as the Fire Department Special Operations Command. Uh, Your newest book that is out now is Working with Giants, uh, which I still have to get and add to my collection. As well as writing for numerous magazines, training articles, serving on committees, and the list goes on and on. Chief, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining me.
1: All right, my pleasure.
0: Cool. So, I don't even know where to begin, but I think where I want to start is really the foundation of where you come from. Because... For for the people that are listening, if they're not familiar with your career and your contributions to the fire service, you are a heavy hitter. And I said that in the intro, and I don't mean that in a weird way. I mean that in a very positive way, that you have been very influential in the in the fire service, where today a lot of the influence is on social media and, and those type of formats, but you were penning and writing articles and books long before the Internet was even a thing. And your career throughout the fire service had to start – um, at some point, and so I'm curious where that foundation for you began, and then how the love and passion you've had for the job, and then paying it forward, where it all comes from. And I'm sure it comes from the foundation at home.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's you know, always family, your family upbringing produces you, and that's what worked out for me. Uh, I had a father who had a very strong work ethic and very strong a patriotic streak. He was a World War II veteran Navy, uh, had been sunk in the Atlantic, and then shipped out to the Pacific, put on a new carrier, and came under kamikaze attacks out there. Mm. You know, that was truly the greatest generation.
0: Sure. For sure.
1: And so with... Go ahead. Well, he came back from the war and uh, immediately joined the volunteer fire department in a town he grew up in. Uh, and that I did not know until years later uh, came about because his own mother had died in a fire.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Wow. In May of 42. And uh, he was still in high school. You know, it was again the height of World War II. Yeah. Uh, you know, he went off to do his duty, but he never forgot that shock of his own mother burning to death. Wow. So he came back, uh, joined the fire department. In, uh, in Inwood, uh, became a chief there in the 1950s when I was uh, just born, actually. And uh, I grew up in a firehouse. We lived uh, around the corner from the firehouse for a large part of my life. And uh, he was working as a relief dispatcher on weekends there. And I would go and bring him lunch or dinner, Right. wait while he ate and I could bring the plate home. But in the meantime, I'd be playing on fire trucks. You know, <laughs> every kid would love to on Ab- a real fire truck.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, you know, he was always running out. He was, you know, he was a dedicated guy. Uh, even, you know, I mean, he was still going to calls at 50, uh, 50 years in the department, you know, 70 years old. Sure. He was still Running around the block.
0: I, I love those early days where, you know, that that generation was family, God and community. Right. Like it was. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. And and those values. I mean, I grew up in a firehouse, too, um, you know, and uh, and those memories stick with you. And and I, you know, I feel that that has so much to do with the foundation that gets laid of how we go after the job ourselves. And so for that, I'm, I'm assuming you rolled right into the volunteers then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was chasing fires, taking pictures at 14 years old, you know, riding around. I remember getting stopped by a cop at three o'clock in the morning. I was on my bike. <laughs> what are you doing out at three o'clock in the morning? I was coming back from a fire. You know? Oh,
0: my gosh. I, yeah. Yeah, I love the st- I love the, I love that story because it resonates with myself as well. We used to chase the trucks all the time and get yelled at all the time by the, by the, uh, <laughs> by the officers. And, it, and it's not, it's generational like that love for the fire. There's still kids today that, that still do the same type of thing. And, um, you know, it might look a little bit different. Um, but there's still that generation that, that next generation that is wanting and longing for this, for this career.
1: God, we need it. Yes. We need kids. We need to create that system to bring them in, you know, whether it's an explorer scout post or, you know, junior fire department or whatever it is, you know, high school classes. We need to attract them and educate them on how great a job this is and get them involved early. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think the values too, right? I mean, I I just talk a lot about the values of what the fire service does. And as much as we need good people, you know, there's some people in this world that need the fire service. And I think that the fire service gives back so much to individuals as well. I know, you know, I have a lot to be thankful for, for my 28 years in the American fire service, and I'm sure you do as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the slogan the Marine Corps used was, you know, we build men. Yeah, so true you know the fire service does the same thing you know i stood back and watched and again i was looking at you know world war ii heroes you know who never you know said a word about their service but these guys you could see the scars on them and you know they just went out and did what needed doing yes you know then they come back and they'd have fun too but they taught me so much about service and, you know
0: yeah. And so was that love for the fire service then? You're in Inwood in Long Island, which butts up right to Queens, right? So that's a busy that's a busy neighborhood, right? Going to fires?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Back in the 60s, when I was growing up, actually, uh, it started in the 50s. They were building the interstate highway system. Right. And one of the routes was planned. It was... I don't know if people understand what the interstate highway system is. It's not to get you to your barbecues. It was it's called the Interstate Coastal and Defense Highway System. Right, and it was meant to be able to get troops out to areas where they thought there could be like enemy landings. There were there were actually they put German uh, submarines put saboteurs ashore on Long Island.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Getting getting troops out there on the old highways, old local roads, was a nightmare. Yeah. So, one of the first routes that was planned was to be Route 878, uh, it was supposed to be interstate. It ended up just a state highway. Mm-hmm. But it came right through my town, and uh, two of the houses that I lived in ended up getting knocked down to make way for this highway. Right. But In the meantime, before they, you know, between the time they moved all the occupants out and the time they knocked them down, sometimes it was months, if not years. Sure. So you had a lot of vacant buildings. Uh, And then in the 60s, urban renewal became an issue, and they started knocking down a lot of houses to put up public housing developments. Right. And all those areas, again, we had lots of vacant buildings. And lots of vacant building fires. So yeah, that was uh, you know, a lot of my upbringing. I had nights in Inwood that were as busy in terms of first to work and fires as any I had in a busy service.
0: <laughs> yeah, no kidding! Wow, that's yeah. why. What a what a introduction to the fire service, huh? Growing yeah, was, growing up you know, there and then being able to ride the back step in those days where you were spend you know sleepless nights going to multiple fires
1: with extremely great firefighters a lot of Inwood at that point had oh eight or ten new york city firefighters again in some of the busiest units in the world right and they were also volunteers in their hometown and you know th- these are the guys that had taken me into fires and teaching me how to do things
0: yeah yeah well
1: i mean uh, joe ball john ball Jay Tavallaro, some of these guys were absolutely legendary New York City fire officers or firefighters. And they're teaching me. So that really was, you know, I mean, career-forming event. Yeah. My first night, actually, my first night in the New York City firehouse was in the spring of 1969 when I went in to visit Engine 230 uh, with a buddy of mine. Uh, joe ball and i'm like wow this is a great job, How do I get this job? <laughs> but i didn't get it right away you know mm. it was 10 years before i actually did get home
0: oh no kidding really
1: well yeah my father insisted that i go to college right and i went out to oklahoma state university in stillwater oklahoma and i served as a uh student firefighter and then later a part paid firefighter with the Stillwater fire department. And when I came home from there, I came back to Inwood and I got a job as a fire protection engineer okay. because I missed the 1973 test, I was out in college when they opened filing and nobody told me Ugh. that filing was open, right I missed that test. So, yeah, I came back, like I said, worked for uh, about almost 70 years as a fire protection engineer in New York City and then uh, finally got hired in AFDNY in 1979.
0: So 79, okay, so 1979 was your hire date. Okay, gotcha. I was curious about that. I didn't see that in any of the bios, so I was just curious when that was. Okay, so 1979. Wow, there's still a a formidable time. I mean, New York City was hopping still.
1: Yeah, it wasn't maybe the height of the war years. But, I mean, 290, getting assigned to 290 had its own issues. Uh, (laughs) 290 was the busiest company in the New York City Fire Department for 50 years. wasn't like some companies, you know, they were a flash in the pan. They, you know, like in 77, Bushwick was burning. Right. And some of those companies there, you know, did as many runs as 290 but by 79 that you know firestorm in bushwick was almost over
0: there was nothing left to burn
1: yeah <laughs> so yeah 290 had 400 first alarm boxes oh my gosh yeah and the companies they they needed more companies there and they never had them you know they in the 60s well early 70s they did put some extra companies in they put in a squad company uh, squad four used to come into 290's quarters. They put an extra ladder company into 103, uh, ladder 103
0: 2. Yes.
1: Uh, but and they had what they called the tactical control units. So uh, engine uh, TCU 531 would come into the neighborhood mm. at three o'clock in the afternoon and just stay on duty till about one o'clock in the morning. Right. That was the only time the unit was open, but it was just during those peak hours that they needed these extra units because the companies were doing six, seven, uh, 8,000 runs a year, you know, individual companies. And it was just third. Now they're back doing that, but it's all EMS runs. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of EMS runs. Right.
0: In the engine. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how does one get assigned to 290 in his, in his probie year? I mean, Ah.
1: I have no idea. It was your luck. <laughs> now, my friends on the job, they were all up in the old 3-4 battalion. Okay. I had, like I say, Joe Ball was in 230 and then 102 truck. Uh, Billy Donald was in 124 and 216 engine. Uh the, Peter Donald was an aide in the 3-4 battalion. All these guys, yeah, we're going to get you to 209 engine. And then you could do a couple of years in 209, and then, then you'll go across the floor to ladder 102. Right. And it was a great plan. Okay, I'm in. I don't know anything, and uh, I have no idea how, but somehow when the order came down, I went to 290. Yeah. You know, I don't know if the, the captain of a company – he can sometimes make a call to the Bureau of Training and say, listen, I, I need, you know, some probies. Give me somebody that, you know. Right. I, so yeah, I well, never, you had never make... did point out how I got there.
0: Well, but, I, I, have but, to, but, I have to believe you made an impression at the Academy too. I mean, you know, for somebody that had that much love for the job and, and went to a lot of fires as a, you know, as a volunteer, you know, on the outskirts of New York City, I'm well, sure you were dialed in from the day you got there.
1: Volunteer time don't count. No,
0: but, but, but your but your love for it, right? That
1: yeah. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. I did have uh, some advantages, not advantages. You know, I like you say had love for the job. Sure. I really wanted to do well, and I studied hard. Yes. And I did come out. I was tied with one other fellow, Gary Connolly, and we were tied for valid Oh, well, there you go. Class.
0: Yep. So, right. Absolutely makes they, sense.
1: Yeah. Nowadays they give the top three candidates at the top three probies in their class, they give them their choice of assignment. Yeah. Which, you know, it's a way of encouraging people to study. And I think that's a great system. Sure. Sure. You want to go to a good place, study hard, work hard, and uh, yeah, we'll take care of you. Yeah.
0: Those early days for you, um, you know, riding at two ninety. I mean, the level of experience and, and the nonstop, in and, you know, in and out or not even getting back to quarters. I mean, I'm sure, you know, from what I know and the, the amount of runs and fire duty that, that was happening. I mean, there were a lot of a lot of tours, I'm sure you weren't even back at the firehouse for. Um, but what did those days do for you for setting up the early stages of your career? I mean, you found your way to special operations and it seemed like that's really where you ex- ex- excelled in your career. Um, and so how did that all transpire?
1: Well, that all happened because I went to 290. Okay. And again, that was sheer luck. Mm. But while I was in 290, there was an officer assigned there, uh, a fellow named Steve Cassani. He was my absolute mentor. Uh, Steve had been a firefighter in Rescue 1, gotten promoted, and he gets assigned out to East New York. And I first met him when he was working in 332 Engine, next company over. And I was working overtime there and I was like, Oh man, guy from Rescue One, this is this is impressive. You That's, know? Yeah. And he was. Steve was a really great boss. I mean, one of the absolute greatest bosses I've ever worked for in my life. Wow. Uh, really, really cared and you asked a moment ago about you know my passing it on. Steve really was like the hinge of that. Got it. <laughs> He would teach people, and he, not just me, but he'd teach all of us, you know, but he would take you aside and kind of give you the Dutch uncle squeeze, you know, hold <laughs> and say, listen, kid, I'm going to teach you this, but I'm going to be really upset if you don't pass it on to the next guy. Right. And he always made you want to please him, you know, and you, you did not want to, I mean, disappoint them.
0: Yeah. But, you know, he's not going to spend he's not going to spend time with anyone that he doesn't know is not going to pass it on. Right. Yeah, like that's that's the beautiful thing about the the informalness of the fire service is that we look for people that we believe will push forward and, and then we'll give everything to them so that they can then continue on.
1: Yeah. I yeah. Mean, there are people, unfortunately, uh, I won't name a name, but we have somebody that we know we call them. Ike, I-K-E. Right. His name is not Ike, but the Ike was assigned to him because when he got on the fire department, guys would be trying to teach him stuff, and he'd say, I know, I know, I know. So they called him Ike. I I know everything. Um, And that nickname stuck with him, you know, and that's a bad rap to get, you know. Nobody wants to teach you if they tell you twice and you say, I know. And then they say, well, obviously you don't because you did it wrong again. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. But Steve, uh, like I say, I worked for him uh, for about a year and a half and he was a great boss. And and there were so many other great bosses there, the captain and the captain of the truck were both, I mean, extremely great officers. Uh, the lieutenants, Walter Schretzman. Uh, Clem Winger, I mean, Paul Buffett in 103. I mean, great, great, great fire officers. But Steve Cassani just had, you know, a little bit extra because I don't know what it was. You can't put a finger on it. Yep, you know, I get cared. it. Every one of them cared for their people, Yeah, uh, taught their people. But in my case, uh, Steve gets transferred to rescue company three and i was so disheartened when steve left us and i was like man what a great boss you know and his replacement was the (laughs) anti-steve he was one of the guys that made me say i gotta be i gotta study i gotta be a boss if this guy can be a boss i can be you know yeah But then after about six months, Steve calls me and asks if I would like to transfer to Rescue 3. And I'm like, oh, are you kidding? Of course. Yeah. You know? Yeah. uh, So Steve made that possible. He talked to the captain, and uh, there was a a couple of things going on. I mean, I I only had four years in the fire department, which is pretty unusual for a a four-year guy to go to a rescue company. Right. But I had, well, I did have nine years in other fire departments. Sure. But that count. But I was a New York State instructor in things like the Hearst tool. Uh, I was a state hazmat instructor, which was a big deal. Yeah. Because right at that time, Rescue 3, Rescue 3 was designated as the backup hazmat company. We didn't have a separate hazmat company, one. Got it. So. They wanted somebody who could help teach hazmat in Rescue 3 and, and do things, you know. Sure. I I've been doing hazmat. Uh, Inwood used to have a lot of tank farms. They had a very large propane gas installation. Uh, so I was very well skilled in flammable liquids, flammable gas firefighting. And I was an instructor out at the Nassau County Fire Academy at that point, teaching a lot of the hazmat operation. So that opened the door for me to go to Hazmat, to Rescue Company 3. Right. After about a year at Rescue 3, the job decided to open up Hazmat Company 1. And now they're looking for people to staff it. I really did not want to go. Yeah. But one of the lieutenants who was a, uh, actually covering still, but he was uh, working in Rescue Three for a long time, Jack Calderon, Jack was going to go and be a lieutenant in the newly formed hazmat company. So he leaned on me. <laughs> and really, I said, yeah. yeah. They would, well, they needed again a new company in service with people who've never worked together and who've never done real hazmat operations. Uh, that would not be a good thing. So they wanted, they took four of us from Rescue 3 and Rescue 4. Gotcha. And said, okay, one in each shift, basically. So you could do, you know, put a a team together and at least somebody had done it before.
0: Sure, sure. And that was 1984, right?
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: All right, that's right. When hazmat was really ramping up in our country, and people yeah. were recognizing the importance of you know being able to mitigate those types of responses and so on, And New York City, like always, is always on the forefront. So you guys were, I'm sure, way ahead of the national curve, if you will. But um, developing a new company within the New York City Fire Department is certainly interesting,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I- a, an entire you know organize a new ladder company. Yeah, you've got plenty of guys who've done that. That's right. Organize a new engine company? Sure. <laughs> you know, a new, entirely different type of unit? Yeah. No, we hadn't had a lot of that experience. Yeah, so.
0: Yeah. Wow, yeah. So how long, how, how much time did you spend then at the Hazmat once it got up and running?
1: Uh, 15 months of okay. a six-month sentence. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, I'm sure it was a good move for you too, though the willingness uh, the willingness to be a part of a new company, I'm sure, shined a, a shined a pretty good light on you with bosses, I would think, when you were looking to move on.
1: Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I went there, and each of us, uh, like I say, uh, they took myself, Connie Tinney, and a fellow named Chris Waters from Rescue Three. Chris was a uh, chemistry instructor, high school chemistry teacher. Oh, wow. Okay and he had done you know he went on to do a lot of stuff with the national fire academy teaching uh, hazmat through the national fire academy Uh, but initially it was supposed to be us going for six months to get the company up and running and trained and then we'd be allowed to go back to our unit and after six months chris and connie went back to rescue three but the captain says, nah, I can't let you go yet.
0: Oh, you're too so, good.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was a junior guy, too. I get it, I yeah. five years on a job. Yeah. Right, right. First I had 19 or 20, and Connie Tinney was at 20 also. And, uh, you know, he's he could squeeze me more.
0: Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Wow, that's wild! And then you do though. After 15 months, then uh, you do make your way out. And then, do you promote at that point? Is that how you got
1: out? Oh, I went back to Rescue Three. Okay. Uh, Captain Billy Ryan was gracious enough to uh, let me return. Nice. And again, I you know had another about a year and a half in Rescue Three, and got promoted from there. Okay. great opportunity i mean i'm so thankful to to everybody involved all along the way you know
0: this episode of the podcast is brought to you by anderson rescue solutions anderson rescue solutions was founded in 2016 by former philadelphia firefighter tim anderson As an urban firefighter and rescue specialist, Tim found that the equipment available to him lacked the usability and practicality in complex, high-stress environments that rescuers often found themselves in. To combat this, he developed products based on his own experiences in the field, creating innovative, efficient gear designed to thrive in reality. The Multi-Loop Rescue Strap is a perfect example of one of these products. Made in America, this patented tool is used for rapidly harnessing firefighters or civilians in the worst conditions. Every feature is fine-tuned to meet the needs of rescuers battling low visibility low dexterity and high stress the multi-loop rescue strap has been used in numerous real world rescues for both firefighters and civilians all across the country and it is being increasingly adopted by fire rescue and tactical agencies as standard issue equipment i carry one I have carried one for many years. It is the most versatile strap out there. Check it out. The multi-loop rescue strap by Anderson Rescue Solutions. Tim Anderson, the owner and proprietor of Anderson Rescue Solutions, has become a dear friend. In fact, he's even been on the podcast several episodes ago. Dropped incredible information. He's super passionate about the fire service, about special operations, and he has built an incredible company and an incredible product. So because of our great... Relationship with Tim and Anderson Rescue Solutions. If you go to AndersonRescue.com, you'll get 10% off if you use the promo code NFR2023. That's NFR2023 at checkout on AndersonRescue.com. You'll get 10% off your order. And do me a favor go over to their social media and check out Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for weekly news, product info, and other content in regards to Anderson Rescue Solutions. This episode's brought to you by Flame Decon. Developed specifically for firefighter decon, flame shampoo, body wash, and soaps reduce your risk of getting occupational cancer. Live fire testing shows that carcinogens on your skin after a fire are removed and undetectable after using flame. Flame Decon has made a product that not only does its job and does it well, but that you'll enjoy using. They smell amazing. They make your skin and hair feel great. I will be an absolute witness to that. I have used the product. Tara and I have known each other for quite some time. She has sent us product. We have used it and it does take that smell of soot and smoke off of you immediately following a shower. It makes a difference. You can find Flame Decon products at flamedecon.com and use promo code NFR for 15% off your first order. That's promo code NFR for 15% off your first order at flamedecon.com. And for departments that are interested in departmental orders, more than one or two pieces of product, you can reach out to Tara directly at Tara at flamedecon.com. She's happy to entertain any inquiries that you have. And this made me think departments need to protect their own and protecting our own is also after the fire. Chiefs, purchasing managers, look into Flame Decon as a way of protecting our firefighters in and out of the firehouse. So check out Flame Decon at flamedecon.com. Use promo code NFR for 15% off your first order. Yeah. Did you, so you really, I mean, outside of the fdny too, you're teaching at Nassau, you're teaching the Hearst Tool, which, you know, early 80s, that's when the Hearst Tool really came onto the market and hydraulics and vehicle extrication and things like that. And rescue, the the rescue companies were really starting to become more diverse, I would think, through that time period too, right, with the level of expectation, the specialized equipment, right? I mean, that's really when the, the heavy rescue side of the job really started to take off, no?
1: Well, not quite yet. Okay. all right. I mean, our rescue companies had always been heavy rescues. They were doing sure. building collapses. I mean, they were doing that right. back in the 20s. Okay. You know, it was the old uh, rubber exposure suits. Right. But, you know, they were doing all these disciplines for decades. Uh, but the... Real focus on tech rescue in the FDNY didn't come until about the mid 90s when I got the one actually. Now, let me back up just a little bit. Sure. In 1991, Ray Downey was part of the uh, federal task force studying how to deploy resources, USAR resources. And Ray was one of the real early progressive people. Yes. Bousing the federal USAR task force concept. And he was really largely responsible for getting New York city to be one of the first 26 teams. Okay. In the United States. Uh, so Ray was very, at that point, I was one of the lieutenants in rescue Two with him. And he was really, really, like I say, a big, strong leader and advocate for New York City professionalizing its heavy rescue capabilities. Like right. I say, we we're doing it forever, but we didn't have a like we didn't have a rescue school in 1983 when I went there. We did not have a rescue school. You learned from the people in the firehouse. Right. They would teach you hands-on stuff. At drill during your shift. Uh, by 1990, Ray was still the captain of Rescue Two, but he was advocating very strongly, and we started developing a series of classes at the Fire Academy, and we—it was the origins of our Tech Rescue School now. Okay. Uh, and Jimmy Curran, who was a Lieutenant in Rescue One was one of the uh, heads of that program as well. Uh, George Krucia from Rescue One. Uh, We we started formalizing it. So everybody who came into any of the five rescues at that point went through uh, a series that we call the modules. Got it. You did a week of confined space training. You did a week of high angle training, collapse rescue training trench rescue training and so on. Uh, So that didn't start until the early 90s. And then by the time, like I say, 94, when I became the captain of rescue one, that was, okay, we're really, we're moving in the more formal direction. The rescue company was uh, going to become CFRD certified and the emphasis, and we were trying to get, I was trying to get EMT training uh, for our people, for, for the rescue companies. Right. And, uh, that was 94. Like I say, when that started to really get formalized.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause I know chief Downey was, you know, instrumental, right. I mean, that was, that's what he's really known for, right. Is his contributions to the rescue services in the yeah. fire department of city of New York. Yeah, for sure. What, a, what an incredible time though, right? To be there to develop the hazmat company, to work in, to work in busy companies, to then go and help, uh, create and mold and shape, uh, a new company, the hazmat one, and then to be involved in the part of the rescue services. And then what the, the actual formulation of sock, right? Uh, in that, in that time period, I mean, you, you were very much involved in some real pivotal times within the FDNY, I would think.
1: Oh, yeah. 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 Very fortunate. You know, again, working with and for these guys, you know, it was uh, Brian O'Flaherty was Captain of Rescue 1 at the time, uh, Ray Downey, mm-hmm. Billy Ryan and Rescue 3. I mean, such great, great leaders. And the bosses at headquarters uh, were just, you know, willing to go ahead and put this out there. You know, it, it made, SOC made a huge difference in formalizing it prior yeah. to that. Like, you know, we didn't work. I'm looking at a picture in my office right now of an explosion on, uh, on 138th Street. And there's Rescue 1, Rescue 3, and Rescue 4 operating. And we never worked with each other. Mm. Unless it was that size event. We didn't know each other. You didn't do a detail to rescue one or vice versa. Uh, so you'd never work together and develop that hands-on relationship. And you didn't have the exact same game plan. Right. Till, like I say, 91, 92 in that area. Uh, so that was critical for us. It so professionalized the organization.
0: Yeah, no, I believe that formalizes the process, right, and in the operations, it makes sense for sure. And to be a part of that, I mean that that's just a pivotal time. Um, and then what? Ninety three was the first World Trade Center bombing.
1: Yes, February of ninety three.
0: And yeah. so, and I think that was that really highlighted a lot of the uh, sock companies or the rescue companies for sure, right? Um, with with the explosion at the World Trade Center.
1: Well, everybody. You know, had their role there. Oh, I mean, for sure. And that explosion, I mean, highlighted, Rescue 1 was most known for Kevin Shea. Correct. You know, yeah. Falling into the shaft and then being rescued. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, there was a, I mean, we'd had tons and tons of events. I mean, this explosion that I'm looking at was in April of 87. Okay. And they've been doing, you know, great, great things for decades prior to that.
0: Sure. What was your what was your passion with the sock companies? What what about the rescue companies that really was why you wanted to be in those companies and then become a leader of them? Was it the excitement? Was it the Absolutely. the variation? Yeah. yeah, talk to me yeah, a little bit about that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Well, you go to every working fire in your borough. Right. First thing, uh, and some of it, yeah. By the time we get there, they don't need. It. You know a rescue company uh you know if it's like rescue two was right in the heart of uh, bed-sty between bed and crown heights between two of the busier ladder companies in the city of new york right those companies are all great companies there we didn't we weren't needed for our specialized skills or anything like that very often but we were an extra pair of hands At a you know at a critical time in the operation, Mm -hmm. Uh, but going out to the outer reaches of the borough, yeah, there were times when you would arrive as the first alarm companies are coming out of the building out of air, and now you're going to make or break that fire. Yeah, that was you know that was a great great experience, (laughs) but the variety of operations was, I mean, just outstanding. I was in. As a lieutenant, I was in a very busy tower ladder company right in, there in the heart of Bed-Stuy there a uh, lot ladder 111, and I loved it. They were great, great guys, going to a lot of fires, but I missed the rescue because I was going to so many brownstone fires. That neighborhood, Bed is solid brownstones. Right. And the old saying is, you know, you burn brownstones out. You don't burn them down. Right. right. Uh, I mean, I had six, wor- I, my groups had six working fires in one building. I think it was 676 <laughs> Black Street. And it was still standing. Yeah. You know, right. It's, it's brick walls. They'd come in, replace new joists, floor joists, and they'd reoccupy it.
0: That's incredible. Uh,
1: but going to the other things, the unusual things, the ship fires, you right. know, one of 111 didn't go to ship fires. You yeah, know? Yeah. I had gone to ship fires as a rescue firefighter, uh, you know, and now I have an opportunity to get back into a rescue company. Yeah, I jumped at it.
0: Yeah, for sure. All the,
1: all the special operations, the building collapses, train wrecks, you know. In you the, get special in, calls for every one of them.
0: In the thick know? of it. Yeah, I, for sure. Then what was, what was the enticement then to promote? Because I'm always curious about – Guys that get to really good companies and and they're doing what they really enjoy doing and they're in the thick of it. And then you know, I know for you, furthering your education and promoting was important to you. Was that because you were making you felt you could make a bigger impact on the job if you if you continued to climb?
1: Uh, part of it. Was, yeah, part of it was the thirty percent pay raise.
0: Sure. Yeah. Real conversation, was, right? Absolutely.
1: My, my studying. Uh, the room where I studied, I had the pay chart posted. <laughs> you know, all, the, all the ranks. Yeah. Okay. Here's how much you're making at this rank, and here's what you're going to make if you get promoted. That was part of it. Yeah, that's called the and,
0: incentivizing yourself right there. Push yourself yeah, to study harder, right? Yeah.
1: That's part of it. But, you know, you look at, like I, I mentioned the Steve Cassani, when right. he left, and his replacement. You know, there's no guarantee that your next boss is going to be as good as you are. Right. And believe that, you know, hey, I'm getting pretty good at this. You should be moving, looking to move forward, you know? I like that. Point, and that's, and, and you know, I don't want to sound, you know, like a braggart or anything like that, but there came a point where uh, I had passed the battalion chief's promotion test and I was going to turn the promotion down. Yeah, you can you can say okay. I don't want to be promoted. I was a captain of rescue one at that point, and uh, I was very happy there. Sure, loved
0: it. yeah, absolutely.
1: But, uh, Chief Dunn, Vinnie Dunn, mm-hmm. came to me and again leaned on me and said, <laughs> yeah, you can't do this. You can't turn that promotion down." And I said, "Chief, I like going to fires. I like doing what I'm doing here." Yeah,
0: he said,
1: yeah. Look at your career. How lucky have you been mm. to work the places you have? Don't you think you owe the job something? I said, well, yeah, I think I've been paying it back. I've been, you know, an instructor. Every time they ask me, I teach. I've written all kinds of training bulletins. I've done lots of pieces. Yeah, but who do you want to report into? If you come up to a fire building, do you want to report into a guy who's done the things that you have? Or do you want to report into a guy from a slow place who only passed the test? And yeah. Well, I guess, I guess you're right. I see Perspective. That well, that's what everybody else in this job wants too. Yeah. So they're looking for guys like you to be the boss. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. That's powerful. I mean, that, that, yeah. He
1: that, that. Yeah, says that, you know,
0: well, to have to have mentors like that, that put tremendous value in you and your skills and your abilities to say, no, we need you to keep pushing up the line because we need more people like you, you know, leading the troops and making decisions and forming, you know, new guidelines and operational procedures and everything else. And so that's nice. And then you, you were able then to follow after, you know, doing your uh, being a battalion chief and promoting. I mean, you came back around to SOC anyway throughout your career.
1: Yeah, well, only because of what happened on September 11th. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was very happy as a battalion chief in the 16th Battalion up in Harlem. Hmm. That's where I plan to spend the rest of my career. I didn't plan to take the deputies test. Okay. I didn't, uh, you know, wasn't looking to go to the rescue battalion. Well, at, the, at that time it was called the Special Operations Battalion. Right. You know, they had four, you know, great chief officers there, and I was just very content going to fires and being a, you know, battalion chief up in Harlem.
0: Right. Right.
1: The losses of September 11th, you know, they lost uh, five of the seven chiefs in special operations plus Ray Downey. Right. And uh, now they said, okay, now we do need you.
0: Yeah. The, the rebuilding, right. I mean, you know, to get, to get people back into those positions that can now, Take it forward, and you know, and so on. I mean, the losses were staggering. Um, being a New Jersey guy, I mean, that was right across the river. We got called in that day to go. Uh, I lost a few friends that day um, as well, and um, and so on. And it was uh, incredibly impactful. And for you to be a part of that, I can't even imagine what that what that did, um, you know, to you and 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 so on. But you know, to pick up and to move forward, um, you know, I, I guess there weren't any other. Options. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: there's no you say yes, sir, and you go right. You know, you put your one foot in front of the other and you just keep going. Yeah, so
0: yeah. And yeah. F- with that, as the company came out of you know, after the you know, 911 and and everything that came from September 11th, and as you push forward, um, deputy chief in 2003, deputy assistant chief in 2004. Go to a citywide tour commander position, right? I mean, that's that's got to be a lot of fun because now you're not just the what would you say the 17th Battalion? Is that where you were in Harlem? Sixteenth, uh, sixteenth. Yes. So you know now you're, you're, that it gets a lot bigger, right? And uh, in that position, did you enjoy those positions?
1: Well, yes and no. Okay. I mean, the first five years after 9/11 were yeah. a tremendously difficult time I'm for sure but you know i was the chief of special operations at that point uh i was a five six seven day a week job right especially the first couple of years it was you know 12 14 hour days sure uh and it was mostly administrative you know i was getting new people recruiting new people you know uh Getting new equipment, writing specifications for new n- new rigs, new you know sure. systems that are, have never existed before. Right, and now we're going to create these, you know, creating a whole new sty- types of units. Yeah, uh, and it was a lot of administrative stuff. Uh, I would get to go on third alarms or any kind of you know unusual again, you know, building collapses. French rescues, any of that stuff, I would respond to, but they're not all that common. So I spent a lot of a lot more time in the office than I did responding to runs. Yep, yep. So that Not not as much fun as being in a field battalion. No,
0: example. but but you're instrumental in moving the job forward, right? Because yeah. you're somebody you're in a yeah it.
1: yeah somebody has
0: to do it. That's right, and and not only yep. Go ahead.
1: We, we all you know. Guys like Tommy Galvin and Eddie Kilduff and all these great people, you know, they all felt the same way. You know, every one of us loved being a firefighter. Yeah. But, you know, now all of a sudden we have this huge vacancy that has to be filled. And guys stepped up and said, yes, sir. And let's do it. And it created an absolutely outstanding team. Yeah. There was no... Nobody looking for any personal praise or anything. It was nobody, you know, in every organization is always a little bit of jealousy where, you know, oh, who is that guy? How come he's getting this job? You mm-hmm. know, right. Or I'm just, I should be in that job. Right. Um, in that situation, there was none of that. And every one of those people, you know, we had teams. Building and doing all this stuff, mm. it wasn't it wasn't any one individual. You know, I went to you know civilians in the fire department, the budget director, and uh, said, "Steve, fellow named Steve Rush, uh, he doesn't get enough respect in the fire department, but Steve Rush was absolutely a tremendous, tremendous supporter. Who we couldn't have gotten half of it done without him." Right, and Steve, we got a problem. We have. A threat, you know, in March of 03 when the Iraq war started. Right. You know, I did, you know, suicide bombings in New York City any moment. We need this capability. We need it today. Yeah. And how much is it going to cost? Well, yeah, it's probably going to start out at about a half a million dollars. I'll try and do what I can, John. I'll get you what, you know, yeah. as much as I can. And he got everything.
0: Mm, wow. And
1: conversation happened over and over again with every person in the fdny like i say all the uh, the support branches you know and a lot of these people are civilians who people say well they're not firefighters they're as much a critical part of the fire department and many of them are as deeply invested in the fire department as the guy in the busiest engine company for sure they don't get the respect yeah no, you're Without, right chief. Well, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let me let me ask you this throughout all of this and, and I, we just spent, you know, a, a lot of time talking about, you know, and we we could talk for days obviously, but your your pedigree, your experience, your knowledge, your upbringing through the fire service, you know, maturing through the ranks and and ending up, you know, in the positions that you were in because of the circumstances that were dealt and so on. But like all of that along the way, you I mean, I was reading articles that you had written, you know, back in the 90s. And before you were a battalion, probably as a lieutenant and captain in the rescue companies. I mean, I remember thumbing through Firehouse, you know, magazine and seeing an article by you, a training well, article and and so on. That
1: goes, back, that goes back to another buddy of mine. Actually, okay. I met in Oklahoma State in 1972. Mm hmm. Harvey Eisner.
0: Sure. New Jersey Harvey. guy, by the way.
1: Exactly. Yes, sir. Right down the road from where
0: I'm from. Yep. Uh,
1: yep. Yeah. Harvey and I met in Oklahoma State, and I left. I was two years ahead of Harvey and uh, came back, and now I'm in Rescue 3. And who is one of the big buffs in Rescue 3? <laughs> Harvey Eisner. Right, he right. Was, Harvey worked for the Bronx District Attorney's Office, And he was the nighttime crime scene photographer. Yes. So he would hang out in Rescue Three's quarters, which had great highway access to the Bronx. And he would go do his, you know, uh, Bronx DA work. And if he wasn't going shooting Bronx DA stuff, he'd shoot fire pictures. Harvey, you know, we reconnect 10 years later now. And he's working for Dennis Smith at Firehouse. Yes. And he's like, I need people to write articles. Why don't you write an article? Harvey, I'm a, you know, I'm a fireman. I'm not a, you know, guys who write articles in the FDNY are cheaps, you know, yeah. no, no, I need, you know, I want the fireman's perspective. Uh, talk about anything. You know, I spent seven years as a fire protection engineer designing sprinkler systems. Write me an article about sprinkler systems. <laughs> And that was the first of my articles, and I believe it was 84 or yeah. eighty four okay. yeah okay, so yeah, I owe that and my my writing the books to Harvey.
0: what was it about writing for you? like did you come to realize that you you know you had you had the abilities through your career? to really be involved in some some incredible stuff that not everybody gets to do as a firefighter, right? I mean, the companies you rode in, the experiences you, you were afforded by being in those those companies and those areas, those neighborhoods. Did you did you recognize that? And was that a way to to share your experiences and knowledge? Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: More importantly, mm. it filled a void. I had 9 years in other fire departments before I got on the FDNY. Right. I considered myself a student of the fire service. Love that. Uh, in college again I you know went to Oklahoma State for fire protection. We studied what are known as the IFSTA manuals. Sure. IFSTA International Fire Service Training Association manuals which are written through the Oklahoma State University. Uh, we studied them and you know we read the Handbook of Fire Protection back-to-back, back, you know, cover-to-cover, cover. and none of those talked about fire tactics. None of them told you how to put out a fire. Right. They 19 ways to, you know, pack hose or throw a ladder, but nobody talked about fire tactics. Mm. And when I got on the FDNY, the first thing you do when you're in probie school is they hand you a stack of books that's three feet high. Yeah. And about two feet of that, A fire tactics manuals, and I was like, "Wow, where's this been?" (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. How come I've seen any of this stuff? Right. And I was astounded. Yeah. That this is like the best kept secret in the fire service. How come nobody outside the city of New York knows about this stuff? Right. So I started writing the articles for Firehouse, and that was my topic. It was well, I started writing training, a training column by, by monthly training column Mm -hmm. uh, opposite Vinnie Dunn. Vinnie did one month and I did the other month. Right. And uh, you know, that was good stuff based on what I had learned to that point was doing to that point. And uh, I guess it was probably about 1989 or 90. I had just gotten promoted. Well, that, that was, Part of it was, yeah, that's what it was. I had studied extremely hard for the lieutenant's exam. Right. I was doing eight hours of studying a day for the lieutenant's exam. I was hungry. Right. Uh, And all of a sudden, now the test is over. And what do I do with my eight hours a day that I used to be? (laughs) Yeah, right. So it was like, okay. Paid it forward. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Harvey. Uh, had taken me down to uh, 14th Street at the time uh, to the Firehouse Magazine office and introduced me to Dennis Smith, right? Uh, who is the founder of Firehouse Magazine. Sure. A report from Engine 82, right? You know. That's just, and Dennis says, "Listen, I want to get into book publishing. I want you to write a book." Wow. I'm like Dennis. I mean, I don't know this I mean, write a magazine. Article column, and that's one thing, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: right, right.
1: No, look at what you've written already. You got, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of magazine columns. Put them all together into a book. Yeah. So that was the genesis of that. But mm. like I say, it was all this time that I had devoted, I had learned, had been taught an awful lot by such great people. Sure. And there was, to me, there was this, you know, void in the fire service that didn't have this, that there was no discussion of fire tactics, you know, there were a couple, no, I should back up. There were a couple, uh, Oh man. It just went right through my mind. Fire ground strategies. Yeah. Oh man. I have a copy of it down cellar. I don't have it up. In- no worries. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was, it was a battalion chief in the four four battalion had written it back in the 1960s. Oh man, I can't remember his name, but it was, you know, one of the few firegrounds strategy or tactics books on the market at the time. And it was, again, that was written in the sixties. Right. Now the nineties. So, yeah, there was a void. Yeah. 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 For sure. Say, more than just filling a market, it was a void in the fire service knowledge that I said, man, if I had known a lot of this stuff, Earlier in my career, I I could have done a better job at this fire or that fire. Things would have worked differently. And I said, man, I wish I had known all that. Yeah. And everybody else should have access to that information as well.
0: Yeah. So, what was your first book then? Was it the
1: fire office? That was the fire office. It was. Okay. Okay. Well, I have
0: my second edition in front of me. Um, the purple, the purple binding yeah. on it, and it's Yellow like an off, purple. off orange yeah. color. Yeah, and yeah. I have the second, uh, the second one. And I was talking about it earlier with you that some of my pages are turned down, and I have things underlined, and so on. And it really, a big part of what I wanted to talk to you about today, and I mean, we could, man, we've been talking for an hour already. I love this, and we're gonna keep going. But it just, you know, the one thing that I'm really intrigued by was. I was so happy to see you pop up on social media. And, you know, I think back to the articles that were influential to me, um, the books that you've written, uh, the Fire Officer's Handbook of Tactics. Like I said, I'm looking at my copy right now. I pulled it off the shelf the other day because I knew we were going to be talking and I was thumbing through looking at things I underlined. This is a book that I probably read cover to cover five times, you know, when I got it back in probably 1999, and it was uh, it was a couple of years in as a firefighter. And that book to me was, um, man, not just not just the the information, but the photos too. The photos of like different building constructions and considerations. And then, um, you know, all different types of applications and operations and different types of, uh, you know, just all of it. And it, it is a really, it's a nice package and probably 400 plus pages, I think. And, you know, it just to me at the time, the internet didn't exist yet, right? It wasn't it wasn't that you could just type something in on, on a search engine and okay. find it. You, you spent, and I think I read somewhere that this book took you eight years to write. Did I read uh, that correctly?
1: No. Okay. Like I say, I got done studying in uh, December of 87, and that was published in 91. Okay. So, All right. I must
0: have read that wrong or read something yeah. else. Okay.
1: But, well, no probably took me about 18 months
0: okay okay so but it's 18 months of you know no g- computers right i mean this is like typing this is you know compiling oh, your thoughts and ideas like
1: i still have the original yellow note pages no kidding i handwritten wow and I hand out. yeah my wife typed it
0: oh my goodness wow that's incredible it's absolutely incredible. But when I talk about social media, right, the influence I had was prior to social media. It was reading books. And, and you know, I read those magazines when they came out three, four, five times every month, cover to cover. I read them. I read them and I read them again. Knew every picture in them, knew every fire photo, every fire truck and every training nugget I could get. I absorbed out of those magazines for you. Yeah.
1: And R- some of that saved my life. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I re- remember reading, uh, oh God, the NFPA's fire service magazine at the time. I think it was, uh, originally it used to be called Fireman. Okay. Uh, but then they changed it to, anyway, I read an article about a fire. It was one of the first trust collapses in Orange County, Florida. Mm. And a dramatic series of photographs taken before the collapse, and then during and after the collapse. And a firefighter was trapped inside the burning building after the truss collapsed on him, and he used his SCBA cylinder as a battering ram to make it out through a plate glass window. Mm. I tucked that. I said, man, great move, great move. And that was one of those things. I read it, and I tucked it away in the back of my mind, And in uh, 92 or 90, no, it had to be 90, 90 or 91, uh, I had a fire where I found myself cut off, trapped, and uh, the room had flashed over and now blocked my escape. And I went to the window and hit it with my tool and it bounced off. Mm. And uh, now I remembered that, firefighter in orange county florida duped to that magazine article yeah and i used my scba cylinder and got myself out of trouble wow so yeah those those tips can save lives wow you would be amazed what you remember at that particular moment
0: yeah you know? wow that's powerful that's She's and that and and that was, you know, uh, just thinking about all of it. And how do I bring it back to this conversation? But it's very much you had to wait every month for those few nuggets to come out. Yeah. Whereas today it's unlimited in the in the ability to seek out information. Right. And so to see you pop up like on Instagram, I was like, oh, wow, look at this. This is exciting. And so talk to me a little bit about that for that process for you, because that's really where we connected. You know, I well, said, you know,
1: please. That's really, uh, it's again, it's another long story. But <laughs> my middle school is an IT guy. Right. He is an IT whiz. Uh, you know, he, he had been a firefighter. He had been to my classes. He had seen, you know, all my photographs. I mean, I've been taking pictures, like I said, for fifty, sure. 55, 56 years. Sure. Uh, he said dad you have all these photographs there is this application called instagram where those pictures would make an impact and i fought it i did not want any part of it of course i, I don't i don't know you know and when i first tried it uh, i was having technical difficulties <laughs> and i i <laughs> my wife came in one day and i was yelling at the computer <laughs> cursing <it. laughs> what's going on i thought this damn thing ain't working right 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 right. It's the stupidest thing and uh she said you know just give it call patrick and patrick you know will talk you through it i love it and yeah he got me through it because uh, yeah my generation did not grow up with computers sure you know, i've used them for 30 years but I'm not current on every app that comes out. No, I get I'm it. I a man get of it. it, yeah. And uh, you know, they both coaxed me through it and got me going to where. Okay, now I've got my two wheel of speed up, you know, and yeah. I can do it myself. But when I had the training wheels on, you know, it was not going well.
0: But you stayed with it, and I and yeah. I and I yeah. think that that's so important because. I'm in I'm in a lot of different chat groups with a lot of different guys across the country and some real, you know, big names and guys that have been instrumental in my career and my upbringing in the fire service, you know, names that are, you know, on the the same level as John Norman, you know, and guys that have been writing for many years. And I read their articles younger and they're they're now friends and, and I chat with them regularly. And I think about a lot of times they're talking about different things that are out there right now and they're saying, Oh, you see that article? Or you see that picture? We did that 20 years ago. This guy yeah. never gets credit for it and all this stuff. Yeah. And I say, yeah, but you guys, I want you guys to put yourselves. And it's hard because a lot of people don't want to put themselves out there because it takes a lot of work. And, and my point of this is is that there's so much good out there. And if we can capture the good and put it out there for people to know, if we share the word and share pictures and experiences and stories. We're, we're, we're pushing this job forward. And for you chief to put your content out there, your photos, your insights, your thoughts, your experiences, and to put that where maybe a 22 year old kid that's not subscribing to a magazine anymore, or doesn't really buy books or read books, but he digests social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, for you to put yourself there that's you making that effort to still push forward and, and push this job forward by talking to the next generation. And you're giving that 22-year-old kid the ability to learn who you are, your uh, your insights into the job, your passion for it, and all the sacrifices you've made along the way to promote the job and push it forward. And I think that's really what matters most here, no?
1: Oh, absolutely. That's why I keep doing it. I, love you know, it. I get a lot of feedback from people. I have two sons on the job, right? Uh, they, you know, tell me Dad. companies, there are companies that don't drill. Yeah. And when you throw something up today, they'll talk about it in the firehouse. I love it. That will be the drill of the day. That's all some guys get, which is a damn shame, but okay. If I can make that's that right. kind of, a, you know, that's, one little contribution and uh, you know i've gotten some great feedback from some people that i really really admire like you say you know those sure great people out there absolutely and okay i'll keep doing it as long as i can when i run out of pictures you know <laughs>
0: i don't th- i don't think <laughs> you're gonna run out send of pictures me, chief send
1: me pictures i you know? <laughs> yeah right it's hard well, yeah on some days.
0: Oh,' I'm, I'm sure it is, but you know, man, you know what you get to do though, with that, between your writings and now putting it out there on platforms that are being digested daily by firefighters, you're creating your legacy. You're leaving a legacy behind. And you know, I, I speak about that a lot because I think it's so important that we know where we come from. and and people that have been instrumental in pushing this job forward, need a need a platform that we appreciate and understand who they are and their contributions to the fire service and it's now done in perpetuity you know you don't have to go to a uh, you know a used books i take my daughter to a used bookstore she's a huge book nerd. She's 15 years old. She reads like, yeah, 700 pages a week. Almost chief. She like reads and reads and reads. It's unbelievable. And I, I told my kids from very early on in life, I said, the one thing I'll never say no to are books. You want to buy a book? I'll buy you any book you want anytime you want. And so I take her to bookstores, used bookstores, and she loves the, all of it. And I start finding myself looking for fire books and, and I'm not the biggest reader because I don't have a lot of time to sit and read books, (laughs) but I hope to one day be able to put my feet up and start digesting the books that I've been collecting. And I love finding these books, but what that tells me is a lot of people aren't sourcing out books anymore. And you know, that's frightening to me. So my point is, is that for you to put your word on social media and on networks that people are digesting of today, the books of today, if you will. It's leaving your legacy in perpetuity and that your grandkids, your great grandkids, your great, great grandkids, or a probie 50 years from now in the FDNY will be able to find your content and learn who you are. And that to me is the most important thing we can do for the fire service.
1: Yeah, it is. It is important, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, I I believe it, and I, I want to hit on two things that are in the book. Um, I was reading the the forward and and a few things in the front of the book, and you mentioned your mentor Steve Cassini, Cassani, right? Cassani, yep. okay, Yep. And then in the in the book, paying it forward in in your forward here, you said uh, it's a couple paragraphs thanking your family and those that were influential on the job, and then it says, and this is this is from your book, um, the Fire Officer's Handbook. Uh, It says, finally, to all the members of all my units, none of you have ever let me down. Without some of you, I wouldn't be here to write this now. I love you all. Stay safe. And that, to me, follows right in line with what Steve Cassani did for you. It's promoting your people and finding people that pushed you forward to be better. Um, You certainly were somebody in my fire service career over 28 years that early on, I knew who you were. I read your word. I read your articles. And I want you to know that you were impactful on my career. So I thank you very much for that. I really do.
1: Uh, As I said, you know, somebody else taught me so much of what I know today. Yeah. And without any of, I mean, literally, guys have saved my life. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I will thank you very much for spending some time with me today. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and I know there's plenty to talk about, but I just want to say thank you. Thank you for trusting me today with your story. Thank you for joining me today and sharing uh, a few stories and experiences. And, um, you know, to me uh, and and the people that are listening, you know, these are the people that we want to seek out and learn their stories. Everybody has a story in the fire service chief. Um, and some stories are just super powerful and impactful and, um, you certainly have made a difference in the fire service and you continue to do so. And for that, I'm grateful. And I thank you very much. All right. Awesome. Chief. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining me. I know, um, you do travel, you speak at different conferences, uh, and so on. If there's a way people need to reach out to you, if they're looking to speak with you further or maybe grab you for a conference or something, how can they reach out to you chief?
1: Well, the easiest is through my website. Okay. It's www.chiefnorman, all one word.
0: Perfect. Com.
1: Right.
0: Perfect. I appreciate
1: and that. It says give us feedback, and it comes right to me. Excellent. Or hit me on the Instagram account. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's my favorite
0: part of this whole podcast right there. Or hit me up on my Instagram account, Chief Norman. Yeah. I oh, love man. it.
1: If anybody told me I would say that ever in my year <laughs> ago, I see you're out of your mind.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm clipping that up for a, I'm clipping that up for a post. That's
1: fantastic,
0: Chief. Thank you so much for making me laugh here at the end, man. What a what a great conversation today. I'm honored to have you on. You have an open invitation to to join me at any time you want to come back and chat about the job and chat and spread the good word, man. You have an open invitation here anytime. I appreciate you so much. Thank you.
1: All right, Jeremy. Thank you, sir.
0: Good. Stay right where you are. I'm just going to sign off the podcast and then I'll come right back to you. Okay, Chief, yeah. hang on one second. So, everyone, thank you for tuning in for a very special episode of the National Fire Radio Podcast. Chief John Norman, man, what a what a great conversation today. And I will get him back on because we're just scratching the surface on an incredible career And so on. And if you're not familiar with Chief Norman, please familiarize yourself. Seek him out on social media. Look up his website. Go to Instagram. His posts are inspirational. They're knowledgeable. And they really are pushing the job forward. He's been writing and working on behalf of the American Fire Service for a very long time. And he was instrumental in my career. So do me a favor. Take this conversation you heard on the podcast today. Take it back to the firehouse and talk about it. Educate people about who Chief Norman is because when we talk about the job, we make the job better. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you at the next one. Jeremy, National Fire Radio. National Fire Radio.